702 on 92.7 and 106 FM. Streaming on 702.co.za. The 702 app. And on DSTV channel 856. Good afternoon. It's six minutes past 12. Welcome to the Midday Report. My name is TD Madia in for Mandy Now, Coming up on the show, there are no rear via buses available in Joburg. We've been speaking about the buses for a few weeks. Now we'll find out why. We speak to the International Relations Director General Zain Dango. South Africa has launched a case at the UN's top court. That's the International Court of Justice. You might have heard about it um, with Aubrey a little bit earlier on. That matter is due to be heard on the 11th and 12th of this month. And we are seemingly struggling to place teachers. One would have imagined we need more teachers at our schools, but there seems to be an issue there. So we'll speak to basic education about that. And we'll revisit the story of Juku Lane. Yesterday, the premier was there. Tabi Sokoba from EWN was there. So we'll get an update from him about what happened in Juku Lane, what, what stories came out of that area. It's, I think, Block P of Soshangube. And on Friday, Oscar Pistorius will finally go home after serving 11 or so years. So we'll find out from Benedict Wicks how that's going to work. And of course, Arts and Culture Minister Zizi Korta is leading a delegation to the home of the late Dr. Peter Makubani. We'll also dip into the memorial service of the late playwright Mungeni Gema that's taking place this afternoon in Durban. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. So two weeks ago, we heard about trouble with Josie's Ria Via bus service. One of its operators, Pio Trans, was placed under business rescue. This following an application from two of its creditors and concerns of widespread corruption. We were then told by the business rescue practitioner, Mahir Tayob, that it looked like there was fraud maladministration, mismanagement of company assets, poor governance and a lack of expertise. We're also promised by Transport MMC in Joburg, Kenikunene, that operations would definitely not be disrupted. Well, this morning got wind of news that Riavaya had suspended its services for the day. So let's try and understand how is it that this has now happened. I'll start now with the business rescue practitioner. Uh, Mahir Tayob joins me now on the line. Good afternoon. Thank you for your time. Let's start with the current problem today, the decision to suspend services. How did that happen? So good afternoon, Chidi. Good afternoon to you and to your listeners. So the dispute is central to bonus payments. Although this amount is ring fenced, I made the determination to pay those bonuses. My previous interviews will validate that intention. Now, I did communicate to the union and to the employees that I intend paying the employees in two parts. The first one being on Monday the 8th, 50%, and the second part and final on the 31st of January. And this was done to allow me to balance the cash flow or should I say the adverse cash flow that I currently have. In addition to that, city, the banking account is still in the migration stage. I'm not yet in full control of it. Prior trans information, which is proprietary information, was being shared with third parties by employees, and I, I took the decision to block all access to every single individual to safeguard the confidentiality of that information. Hence, the migration is still in its stage. Now, this particular account will only and most probably be fully migrated on Friday. Hence, it was my anticipation to pay the first payment on Monday. Now, see if you look at or if you listen to my previous interviews, I was always cognizant 
of the real possibility of sabotage. But I was also very hopeful that the employees would be aligned to the turnaround process. While I guess that the culture of acting with impunity cannot be ignored. But I must also tell you why there was such a pushback. Because I demanded during my tenure or limited tenure at the moment, accountability, systems, governance, confidentiality agreements, performance agreements, automated systems in the form of cameras, biometrics, etc. And the resulting being, I unearthed doctor timesheets, buses being taken off service for minor repairs and superficial commitment from employees. Now, TD, you must remember, I am appointed to do a job and I shall do so without fear. I will engage with any party having a vested interest in Payutrans, be it the media, be it the commuters, be it creditors. I, however, cannot negotiate and engage when I'm held to ransom. And this is exactly what had happened this morning. The, the, there was an illegal strike. And the strike is unprotected. And I did issue an ultimatum notice, which unfortunately remains ignored. I therefore instructed my counsel to approach the Labour Court on an urgent basis for appropriate relief. As you know, the courts are best suited for the ventilation of these issues. I also instructed counsel to issue a summons for damages that Payutrans may have suffered. Then I have been informed in a very bizarre twist of events that the employees are now concerned that these bonus payments will attract a tax deduction, which only leads me to conclude that prior payments were effectuated without any tax deduction. This culture of impunity and lawlessness will not be tolerated under my watch and I will rectify all past indiscretions within the confines of the law. Today, I must tell you that mm. the deeper I delve into this entity, the more indiscretions I unearth. And as South Africans, regrettably, we have become accustomed and tolerant to these failing companies without demanding accountability. And I do not intend adding priorities to that unsavory statistics. There must be repercussions and those allegedly responsible must answer to the public. After all, funds in the, the public funds is the common variable mm-hmm. in this transaction. Our tax rents cannot be squandered by an act of commission or, or omission. And those are the two issues that are currently in dispute. Maya, before I even ask you more about the dispute or what the way forward, the dispute, let me ask you from a commuter perspective, what happens now? The buses have been shut down for the day. There is another operator. They can't pick up the load and make sure that commuters, people returning back to work, are able to access the rear via buses. So I do have a standby uh, force of, of, of drivers, but they are not giving access because of the blockage. I to now send in security to protect those buses. And so I could get commuters back onto the road, the buses back onto the road and commuters, you know, to be less inconvenienced. They are already inconvenient. I've held several discussions with the city already this morning, but unfortunately, I'm, my, my hands are tied to the extent that I have to approach court on an urgent basis to interdict this process. It's something that has to be done. I was hopeful that I could avoid this I communicated a letter to the unions this morning to the employees, but it, it was of no force or value to them, unfortunately. And I do apologize to the commuters. 
And then the issue of talking to the unions or to the employee to the empl- to the employees about the way forward. You say you have no choice but to go to court. So at this point, talking has not yielded anything, and from where you stand, it won't yield anything. So would it be fair to then assume that even tomorrow, the likelihood of seeing rear buses in operations is actually quite slim? It's slim. It's slim. So today, I must also tell you, I can understand the frustration of the employees. But the manner in which they approached it was wrong. Part of my turnaround plan was to create a staff trust so they could have skin in the game to share profits. That is also part and parcel of it. Notwithstanding that we are overstaffed, I did not proceed with attrition. I said that we must try and retain the jobs, especially considering the market conditions in South Africa, the economic conditions. And I was hopeful to increase the buses so that we could have sufficient drivers for sufficient operations. Um, But it's it's not all of the employees. It's only a few employees. But of course, those employees are fearful and they would go with what the masses do. So although although I've got to be uh, approachable, I also have to be assertive in many aspects. And unfortunately, this is one of the times that I have to be assertive and approach the court for the necessary redress. All right, thank you so much. That's the business rescue practitioner, Maya Tayob, who's looking after Pio Trans, um, which has fallen into all manner of graft, but worse, that buses have now been suspended due to this protest. Listening in on that conversation, this unlawful strike, rather, is Kenny Kunene, who's a Joburg Transport MMC. Kenny, thank you for your time. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. You just listen to what is going wrong at Pio Trans and why Reavaya buses are not available. Your reaction to what's happening, the development now. Take into consideration that you and I spoke recently and you said operations will definitely not be disrupted at all. Uh, thank you for having me, CD, and good afternoon to your listeners. Indeed, I uh, made that commitment um, based on the operations uh, at Pyotans. However, this is a, this is a different matter. Mm. I spoke to one of the shop stewards this morning and I said to him, I'm very disappointed in, in, in your people and I'm disappointed in the leadership of the shop stewards that they have agreed to this. I have supported the drivers. I have supported employees there and where they went on strike for the right reasons, I intervened and resolved the matter. But this one, these drivers are very much unreasonable. They are very much unreasonable and we cannot tolerate. This company has problems. A business rescue practitioner is there to go and rescue the business. They decide not to go to work, which means Piotrans is going to lose money today. How do they expect to keep their jobs? Because if this company falls, they are all unemployed. The whole lot of them, including those shop stewards. They are all unemployed. So we are trying as the city to assist and make sure that Piotran survives for them and the shareholders. And they go now to go and disrupt exactly what we are trying to do. Kenny? The business rescue practitioner is correct. I support him 220%. He must be assertive. And I think I must engage the MMC of uh, uh, public safety so that JMPD can be deployed there 
end so that whoever stands in the way of the standby drivers who must go and service our people, Piotrans is, 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 is operating Reavaya on behalf of the city. So if they are going to disrupt service delivery that the city must provide unreasonably, then we have no mercy. We will have no mercy at all. And if the court comes back and gives the interdict and they go against that interdict, then the business rescue practitioner must follow the law. If he has to fire all of them, he must fire them. But we are not going to deprive our people of service delivery because of people who, who, who don't want to understand the reality of the situation. The business rescue practitioner has said you will be paid on this day and on this day. Those days have not arrived. And they are now going on strike. It's unreasonable. And I agree with him. It could be part of sabotage. But they are sabotaging their own jobs. They, they are, are self-sabotaging. Kenny, just before I let you go, um, what conditions would enable the city to get involved in such a matter? Because by, by, by essence, from what I understand, you should be playing at a distance where you engage with stakeholders, but the running and operations are not necessarily your role. However, there must be conditions where you do need to interdict. Do you feel you've reached those conditions in this situation where now Trans is in trouble, Riavaya is in trouble, there's an actual real risk, as you, as you speak about losing jobs, over and above the corruption that's been, that's been dealt with, there's a real risk of this company going under, and that will be a travesty for the people of Joburg. Do you now see the opportunity to get involved, and to what extent will you be involved in, in trying to assist the situation? Uh, uh look... Um, when service delivery is affected, we have to get involved. Um, however, the business rescue practitioner is there. Uh, let us see how this court process unfolds. It is not just the drivers. Hello? All right, Kenny, I heard you. Thank you. Yes, so it is not just the drivers. It is also the shareholders. I have given a commitment to the shareholders that I will help them to bring this company back. But I know that there are some of the shareholders who want Piotrans to go down. So for the sake of those who are sitting at home and expecting their money, their returns for the taxes that they have destroyed, I will continue to fight for Piotrans to stand. But as for the workers, they must be fired if they are going to stand in the web service delivery. This particular uh, uh, arrangement, Piotrans is appointed now on a performance basis. Okay. So if it does not perform, the city can withdraw. Okay, Kenny, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much. That's Transport MMC, Kenny Kunen, speaking about the issues of Piotrans. So for now... The rear via buses have been suspended. You might have heard there where Maya Tayob is saying he does not see the buses operating tomorrow. There is a safety concern. There's concerns around sabotage. So Kenny, they're saying that they'll try and get um, JMPD also involved in order to try and make sure that those who are on standby willing to work will eventually do so. This matter, I think, will be resolved in the courts. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. So a date has been set to hear South Africa's application before the International Court of Justice. 
our country has triggered the interest this inter- i think it is an interesting case which has drawn all manner of reactions and the matter has been set for the 11th and the 12th of this month that's next week Thursday and Friday our country wants the court to declare that Israel has breached and continues to breach its obligations under the genocide convention it also wants it to end its offensive against Gaza we speak now to director general at the department of international relations Zain Dango who joins me now on the line Zain good afternoon thank you so much for your time Let's start with the importance of this step that's been taken by South Africa and what you're hoping it will mean for all the other UN member states. Uh, good morning. Yeah, so the as you said in your introductory re- remarks, it's really in keeping with our own obligations under the Genocide Convention. We are state party to the Genocide Convention, and that convention compels all state parties to either um, prevent or punish um, acts that we that are considered to be genocidal. It also includes, for example, to to act against um, the incitement towards genocide. And what's been unfolding in Gaza over the last <coughs> two months clearly um, has been, in our view and in the view of many, including the UN Special Rapporteurs, um, genocide. Um, and this is not an, a decision that is taken lightly, as you may know. Mm. You know, genocide turns on intent. It's not only mass killing, but it also the, the special intent that needs to be, um, you know, at play is also uh, the intent to kill a, a recognized group or destroy in part or in whole a recognized group. And we've seen these statements coming from the most senior leaders in Israel, including from its prime minister down to, you know, senior uh, military officials. Um, We've also seen civil society um, leaders, including journalists in Israel, um, you know, inciting um, genocide. So this is a very serious um, um, claim we're making. And we are hoping that the ICJ would take our, our claim very seriously. And more importantly, on the 11th, when we present our case, um, consider our plea for, um, you know, what we call the, the immediate measures. Um, the so-called provisional measures to to take hold, which includes um, an, an immediate ceasefire. The 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 approach that we're taking to with the ICJ is not just an advisory one. You know, many <clears throat> many advisory many opinions from the ICJ are advisory. Mm. The approach that we've taken under Article Nine is binding, so it'll be binding on all those um, parties in this particular case, including Israel. So. Any, any country, including those who support Israel, who respect international law, if the court orders that as part of the provisional measures that Israel has to immediately stop its attacks on Gaza, they will have to ensure that Israel does stop. And in terms of our state of readiness, um, how prepared is South Africa for this this particular application that is put forward? I've heard people making arguments about the application in and of itself, saying that you know some people have raised concerns around the language, saying that they feel it's too emotional where we come from, our position on it, and the issue around language then would be an argument that they feel not enough of a case has been made to argue genocide on their case uh, from their perspective. Just in terms of state of readiness, how are we? How are we doing? Now, I'm not sure who that person would be would have said that the language is emotional. Um, I think it may be Thomas Eusen. Um But I think if we have to take look at the, the, the views of most international legal experts, um, both at home and abroad, I think there's been universal praise for the application that has been put forward. 
It was carefully considered. It was done over a period of a week or two after Captain's decision. Obviously, we didn't make this public for for reasons um, which are legal in nature, but the, the application is very detailed. It spells out the legal argument. It spells out the issues of intent, and I said the importance. In many genocide cases, it's very difficult to prove because intent is almost always hard to, to, mm. to prove. In this case, the element of intent is perhaps the easiest in many of the previous than many of the previous cases of genocide that has gone before the ICJ. So our application details that the application has been drafted by some of the top international legal, um, you know, lawyers and academics. So um, I do think that the, you know, the this is not just me saying it, but it's if you if you take the the word of many international legal scholars and observers who've managed to read the document in detail because it's on the ICJ website. Um, it is a very good application and it lays out the arguments in, in, in a lot of detail. And just very briefly, going back to some of the criticism that's been leveled against our government for this move, some will say you're not attending enough to domestic issues as far as the continent is concerned, but you're thrusting yourself in this space where you are pitting yourself against some of the superpowers. Just again, looking for reaction to that. I do see and I recognize that there's been a lot of support for this move, but I've also noticed yeah. noted the, the, the criticism. Hence, I spoke about the language as well. Mm. See, I think the... Of course, we've got domestic challenges in South Africa. Um, you know, we've got to deal with those domestic challenges, but it doesn't mean that we must then not tend to some of our international obligations. Um, that's why we have a, a you know a responsibility, for example, in the department that that I am in, um, to deal with these international pressing issues. Um, that we 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 cannot use some of our domestic challenges to 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 sidestep our international obligations. And I think it's also um, an argument put forward by people who are, are very unhappy by the fact that South Africa is being consistent with its own commitment to seeing that international law is applied equally and consistently across all situations. You know, we've been, for example, <laughs> Russia, Ukraine, we've been very consistent in saying, while we understand Russia's concerns about NATO, we do not condone the use of force, and we've said very clearly in the UN and other places that the use of force by Russia is unlawful um, under international law. South Africa and Brazil has led this discussion and argument at the G20, and we are very consistent in saying that these very same principles must apply to Palestine as well. So you find a situation where countries would agree with our putting these principles forward when it comes to the situation in Ukraine, but then suddenly ignore these international principles when it needs to be applied in Palestine. Um, and I think the, the geopolitics of it is one that we are very aware of, mm. um, but we cannot be allowing the kind of pressures that will be coming from those geopolitical concerns to make us shirk our responsibility when we do see a genocide unfolding. Um, you know, we, we cannot see a genocide unfolding and find reasons not to act, including some of the, I think, excuses that seem to want to deflect from the action that we need to take in the international arena. South Africa is a middle power. We don't have a big economy. We don't have a big army. We depend on the institutions of global governance to ensure that our voice is heard. And we're using the institutions of global governance, such as the International Criminal Court, the ICJ, the UN, to the best um, that it can offer. We know these institutions are flawed, but it's the best that we have. So we, our agenda is to reform it, but to use it. All right, I take that. Thank you so much. That's Zain Dango, who is the Director General at the Department of International Relations. You know, speaking of this particular story, so Elon, 
Elon Levi speaking on behalf of the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last last week yes, accused South Africa of giving political and legal cover to the October 7 Hamas attacks on Israel with trigger, which triggered rather a three-month-long war. He also said the State of Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice at The Hague to dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel. Now, I don't know the phrase blood libel. I had to actually go look it up if you're wondering. So I did. I googled it and according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it's the false and malicious perpetuated accusation that Jews have murdered non-Jews such as Christian children in order to use their blood in rituals. So that's what they're accusing South Africa of having committed. So that story will unfold next week when that matter is heard before the ICJ on the 11th and the 12th of this month that's next week no yeah even to the 12th of this month it is now half past 12 because this journey is better taken together let's walk the talk 702 it's 12.35 you're still listening to the midday report my name is cd standing in for bandy wiener i want to focus on this for just a little bit so I've heard, or you might have heard, about the struggles of the placement of medical students. And it's a, it's a year-on-year thing now, where every year after they graduate, there seems to be issues placing those particular students. It seems similar struggles are now facing the education department. Government seemingly admitting that placement of graduate teachers is not meeting its targets. Let's try to get a better understanding of this from Basic Education's Elijah Mtlanga, who joins me now on the line. Elijah, good afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. I thought we had a shortage of teachers all along, and I've assumed that if you have a lot more of them graduating, that means that we have an answer to the problem, an answer to overcrowding at our schools. But it seems that there's an issue in and of itself with more teachers, well, more learners, students rather, graduating as teachers. Uh, good afternoon, Sidi. You're correct. The This story we are discussing now contradicts the other story which has been written at almost the same time where they say that uh, we are going to have a shortage of teachers. And we've been arguing as a department that we don't have a shortage of teachers. In fact, we have an oversupply of teachers, particularly in certain areas, um, which then clarifies that particular matter. But what we are talking about here is the Funza Lushaka Bazari program, which the department has, which is offered to young people who wish to take teaching as a, as a profession of preference, but it is a conditional bursary. You need to be um, willing to teach uh, math and languages at foundation phase, as well as uh, ICT, related subjects. And we offer the bursaries to young people to go to university uh, to study. When they come back as a department, as part of the agreement, we have an obligation to, to place you at a school so that we complete the cycle of having funded you and then giving you an opportunity to work. But what we've been having uh, in the past is a problem where we're not able to place all our candidates um, immediately after graduating because of various factors. Let's speak about some of those factors that are getting in the way in terms of placement. Well, the one is the availability of, of budget in the provinces for them to be able to create posts which will absorb our graduates. Um, in other areas, the suitability of subjects, the subjects that they're qualified for and they need where they are, they don't match, which means there's a little bit of a waiting period between when they graduate and when they are placed. 
But shouldn't then there be a conversation around the planning? Because when you absorb particular students who are going to focus on particular subjects, one imagines then you plan forward to where they'll end up and where you can patch them in. Isn't there a conversation to be had, Elijah, around the planning processes so that there's a cohesive flow? No, you are correct. Uh, it is needed, and uh, at times that particular planning is had, but you also have a situation where some schools uh, get closed because the enrollment numbers have gone down, which means where we had projected that there would be a school, you find that the school is no longer there because the numbers have reduced. So the migration that you see in provinces like Gauteng, where there's overcrowding, it also means that in other places in the country, the numbers have reduced to the extent that you cannot operate that school anymore. So those opportunities which would have been projected over some years suddenly change, uh, thus leaving some of our graduates stranded. But uh, of the 4,075 that graduated at the end of 2022, about 2,800 of them were placed, which means uh, while we are not able to place all of them, but more than 70% of them have been placed and we continue to place them every month or every day when there's an opportunity somewhere. So as we speak, you're still trying to play some from the previous year and you'll then have this current cohort coming from 2023 as well. Yes, correct. That's the, that's the situation that is facing us right now. But uh, we hope that with schools reopening, some of the challenges uh, are, are going to be even clearer and some of the schools that have budgets from their school governing body annual allocation, they will be able to absorb some of the teachers. And there are no other ways to mitigate this beyond waiting for schools to open to see where you can plug people in? Well, the planning would have been done last year, but uh, some things do change in between when schools have closed and when they reopen. So there are some dynamics that can affect the situation, resulting in some uh, post-opening as well, because the conversations in government never end especially between the Minister of Basic Education as well as the Minister of Finance. And Elijah, just before I let you go, I know that there is a countdown now in place towards the release of the metric class of 2023's results. I imagine everything is in order. Just to get a quick update from you about preparations and the state of readiness from basic education towards that particular period. Yeah, in fact, we've been working around the clock. We're in the office. We've been here. In fact, we never closed. So... We are now getting closer and closer to finalizing the processes. We are in one meeting today until late in the evening. Tomorrow it continues, preparing for our important meeting with Umar Lucy on Friday, where we'll then exchange information in terms of the work that we have done and what they do. So we're on schedule. The minister will indeed announce the pass rate for the class of 2023 on the 18th of January. All right, thank you so much. That's Basic Education Spokesperson Elijah Mklana. Give us an update about that issue with the teachers where migrations affected the, the placement of teachers, where budgets in different provinces affected them, that over 4,000 needed to be placed. He says over 70% had been placed, but that's a number from 2020, well, 2022. So they'll still have to deal with the number then of 2023, right? So that is an issue. And we complain about overcrowding. These issues are happening at the same time. There should be better ways for these problems to answer each other's, um, to be the solutions to each other's problems. But anyway, that's, yeah, that's something that he says they'll have to wait and see when schools reopen in a few weeks' time. Let's take a quick break. Working this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk.
You must remember that there's also high volumes on the highways. A lot of people are making their ways back into the city, back into Gauteng. I believe that the Border Management Authority is also uh, busy. It's got its hands full at the at the borders, trying to manage the people coming back into the country. So that's a story that I think EWN will be following up and I'm sure will be picked at a little bit later on here on 702 a little bit later. So there is lots of things lots in the air. We will take you to the Mbongeni Gemma Memorial. I see that it's just started so we'll, we'll catch up there a little bit. Um, that's and a little bit more coming up this hour. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. So I want to go back to a story that we dealt with yesterday, but there wasn't a lot of development at the start of the show yesterday, during the show yesterday. But uh, Premier Panyazali Sufi and the police yesterday paid a visit to Sojanguve's Block P, that's in Juku Lane, following the killing, the shooting on killing of four people. Two suspects had been taken into custody. They're due in court tomorrow. I want to speak to Tabiso Goba, EWN's Tabiso Goba, who was there yesterday. He joins me now on the line. Tabiso, good afternoon. Let's just speak about some of the developments that you heard. You were there yesterday. So you found out that two suspects had been taken into custody. Would they be looking for more people or are the two just sufficient? Afternoon, CD. Um, yes. Um, so, as you know, CD, one of the deceased uh, persons here was a police officer, Constable Mpo Khobotlo. Um He was actually stationed at the OR Tambo International uh, Airport. Um, so, obviously, because the police officer was killed here, CD, um, th- this is now a-, a matter for the Hawks, who obviously investigates all these police killings to find out if actually, you know, what was there any links um, to any to what he to what he was investigating, or to maybe he was being prevented from his job or being assassinated, and I think that's where the crux of the matter is, CD. So as I said, four people were killed, CD. There's obviously um, a lot of not a lot, just um, two people. The families feel that you know they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. So the 14 year old who uh, who unfortunately died. This is Viola to Zuela. So according to her family, she, was, she, she went out to go greet her uncle. And when she went out to go greet her uncle, that's when the shooting started. And unfortunately, she was also shot and died. Um, so this is uh, her aunt speaking about the 14, uh, 14-year-old niece and just what kind of person she was. We believe that God has tested us in a very cruel way. But that's life. Yes, she was in the bad place, but this is home. This is just happening girl at the corner. So he was, she was home. She just went out to greet her uncle, only to find out that there were people coming. I'm not sure who they were coming from, and that there was gunshots happening. Unfortunately, she was part of the of that. She loved beautiful things. She loves. If you could check our. She didn't have a phone, but my TikTok, she is there. On my sister's TikTok, she is there. She will take phone and dance, like on our TikToks, post videos. She just loved beautiful things. She was just a chubby, a chubby child, very happy child. He was just a happy child. Mm, definitely tragic. Um, Tabisa, I understand that the Premier also raised concerns about the high levels of crime in the area. One of our colleagues, Alpha Ramoswanas from Pretoria, says Juku Lane is actually quite notorious for the high levels of crime in the area. And that is something that Panyaza also, Panyaza Lusufi, the Premier, also discovered yesterday. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, 
one of the quotes that uh, the premier said that they need to overhaul uh, how they p- uh, policing uh, not just Jugulim but social Google because obviously um, there is a lot of crime. I will say obviously TD that this is not something that's um, this mass shooting. It's not something that's uh, pretty much used used. Um, used to in, uh, in Soshanguve. I mean, when you look at the murder stat of Soshanguve, it ranks, you know, one of the lowest uh, in terms of murder stats. I think about 11 people died during the last um, the last quarter, which is uh, pretty much low. It's not even in the top um, 30 of uh, worst stations in the country. So the crime that is actually an issue is much more um, those robbery, those carjacking, hijacking, and obviously um, assault. Those are interpersonal crimes. Um, so that's what is the issue. And um, I think, Tidi, just um, to go back to, obviously, to the, the people that died, um, mm-hmm. there's also a, a lady, um, 26-year-old uh, Pumolong uh, Malakapato. Um, so she was obviously another person who unfortunately got caught in a crossfire. Um, according to her uncle, Sizi Lechonga, um, she'd just come back from a crossover prayer service and she just stopped to go chat with her friends, and that is when the shooting started. So this is her uncle, um, Siziwi Lechonga, speaking about um, her, his, uh, his, uh, his niece. All right, I think there is a bit of an issue with that clip. Thank you so much. That's Tabiso Goba, EWN reporter, speaking about what happened in Juku Lane, where they were yesterday, where the Premier paid a visit to the police station and the families uh, of those who died in that gunfire and the shooting incident that took place on New Year's Day. A 14-year-old, a happy 14-year-old, who apparently had gone out to go and greet her uncle. And as you heard him now, saying that a 26-year-old was also caught in a crossfire who had just come from a prayer service, you know, starting a new year. That's Tabiso Goba from EWN. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. It's been two years since parts of parliament were gutted by a fire. I understand construction on areas that were affected will finally start sometime this quarter. This with members of parliament said to return for full physical sittings this year. We speak now to EWN's Lindsay Dentlinger, who joins me now on the line. Lindsay First of all, Happy New Year. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, let's speak a little bit about the journey towards finally starting to deal with the damage from the fires. Some would argue that Parliament has taken a scenic route towards this. What was the process like? Why was it so delayed? Thank you, PD, and same to you. Um, look, I think Parliament really will need to get cracking this year as much as it wants to insist that um, the the fire has not impacted the work of Parliament and that it's still as robust and doing what it needs to do. The reality is the lack of a physical space for um, the full uh, contingent of Parliament to meet uh, is problematic. We saw late last year that an impeachment vote against um, uh, two high court judges had to be postponed because of a lack of a venue to have everybody present. And as you point out, there are going to be two State of the Nation addresses this year um, and all um, uh, functions and big um, events happening this year that will require Parliament to meet physically. Parliament itself, CD will um, deny that they have been dragging their feet, as you point out, two years yesterday since the National Assembly um, building was gutted. Um, there has already been an allocation of two billion rand made by Treasury, um, but I think they will argue that the time um, was needed to prepare the site for construction. What we know from um, a previous statement issued late last year is that by next month they should have 
uh, preliminary design CD on the table that will allow a set uh, number of contractors to bid for. And that is probably the next big phase that we will be looking Mm. towards as to who will be awarded these contracts to fulfill um, these new designs. Because obviously they want to make use of this opportunity to modernize the parliamentary precinct and the buildings to introduce green building um, uh, factors um, and so an opportunity also to reshape and to modernize and to re-envision um, Parliament and to that these buildings can really aid uh, in the way that Parliament does its work. And Lindsay, just before I let you go, the value and importance of having all the MPs physically in one place uh, to discuss matters, you know. I always think about the spectacle that Parliament was when they're all together, but I know that there have been some parties who have been yearning for full sittings for a resumption of what Parliament was back where it belonged, as opposed to even having things like the State of the Nation at the City Hall. That's kind of what people are hoping for, is that correct? Uh, yes, CD. I mean, we've uh, seen these virtual sittings also being quite chaotic. I don't think uh, they, you are always getting the nuances of what is being said. There are constant interruptions. Uh, people um, are saying that they're not getting their fair amount of speaking time. So it is chaotic in a different way, uh, CD. As you said, getting everybody in, all in one room, uh, we might fear um, you know, chaotic sessions. But these sessions that they've been having, at most, not even 200 of the 400 MPs um, able to be accommodated during a, normally, a normal plenary session um, also leaves a lot to be desired. So um, we still see many, many committee meetings, for example, um, still continuing to take place um, in a virtual uh, space. And unfortunately, as much as technology has allowed Parliament to continue to work uh, and has advanced the way people do work, it just does not have the same effect um, as having especially people who Parliament is set to hold to account, having them appear physically before them to be questioned face to face. There just is no technology, just really cannot replace that kind of interaction, CD. All right, thank you so much. Welcome back again. That's Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN Parliamentary Reporter, giving us an update on the renovations or the the fixing, really, of the damaged parts of Parliament and attempts to renovate it ahead of the new year. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. So a battle over cigarette trading has been taking place in the courts. There's constantly, if you're paying attention, battles over cigarette trading in this country. So two-part application with the first round having gone to the South African Revenue of Services. This is for the CCTV cameras to be installed across all tobacco and cigarette manufacturing warehouses. So the internet didn't go through. Um, they're still waiting on that matter to be dealt with regarding the overall uh, matter, to, overall issue to be dealt with, the rule itself. But I do know that there's been an, at least for now, there's been an award given on the issue of urgency. Joining me now at the moment to give reaction is um, Sinenta Antlamguni from the Fair Trade and Independent Tobacco Association. Earlier on, Ray White on, on The Breakfast Show spoke to Yusuf Abramji in reaction to this, where they welcomed this ruling on urgency. Sinenta I imagine that you're looking at this and you're saying, yeah, but it's not about the merit. For now, this is a loss. Yes, a winter SARS, but it's not about the merit of the case that you've put forward. Forward. Definitely, and I think it's still early days. Um, the urgency was quite correctly adjudicated on, but the merits of our interdict application haven't been adjudicated on. So in, we intend definitely setting that down um, over the course of the next few days 
to get a date in as far as getting it enrolled on the normal motion roll. And we're hoping to get it heard sooner rather than later. That will then obviously deal with the interdict proceedings. But there's also the bigger review application, which sets, seeks to review and set aside the implementation of Rule 19.09, which SARS is looking to introduce in order to install CCTV cameras at all licensed cigarette manufacturers. And let's go through your issue with that, your core argument against that move by SARS, the reason why you are concerned and why you're against it. I mean, it, it, essentially, it's, it, it's in relation to our constitutional rights to privacy and property, which are enshrined by uh, sections uh, 14 and 25.1 of the Constitution. And in as far as privacy is concerned, I think that one is more self-explanatory. We, we, we're quite concerned about the privacy of not only the, the uh, manufacturers themselves, but also the employees of those manufacturers. And when it comes to property, we, we're concerned about intellectual property and the fact that previously and historically SARS has found itself wanting when it comes to the retention of the confidential information of taxpayers. And in particular, in this particular industry, where, of course, it's quite competitive, as you put it earlier on in your introduction, that it, it's quite a heavily contested industry. And um, people have not in the past um, been shy to, to bend the rules in order to get any competitive advantage they can get. So we're worried that if this intellectual property is placed in the wrong hands, it may, of course, then lead to unfair competition on the part of some who may have access to um, this information through underhanded means. But what of what of the arguments, Nentlantla, that we're at a point in our country where you do need to keep an eye on what's happening around particular quarters of of society where crime is completely, completely out of control and a way to try and manage it is through CCTV cameras, CCTV footage. And so what happens in some of these warehouses, I understand your concern around and trade secrets and the likes, but there's a greater concern over crime that's completely uncontrollable. Um, what of that argument? And I think Yusuf Abramji has made a similar argument to that. Look, there, there are many counters to that argument in that, firstly, SARS had previously uh, installed officials at every cigarette manufacturing warehouse, um, which, which would monitor the production of, of, of cigarettes. Uh, beyond that, SARS also then installed counter production counters on all the machinery we have not heard from SARS what the, the the shortfalls of those measures were beyond that there's an international best practice which is called ta- track and trace where tax stamps are fixed on every box of cigarettes and a SARS official could go around the market scan that particular box and see if excise has been paid on, on that particular box of cigarettes we we have not seen from SARS why they resorted to the most draconian measure which is not implemented anywhere but in, in mostly communist states. And I've heard someone earlier on on this particular station mention countries which he suggests have implemented this particular measure, which are democratic states, and nothing could be further from the truth. So um, we, we've not seen this in any democratic dispensation being installed. And we're saying simply that um, this is something draconian where SARS has available to it less intrusive, invasive methods and mechanisms which it can implement. 
All right, Slintanta, I've run out of time, so I'm going to leave it at that. That's Slintanta Mguni, who's chairperson of the Fair Trade Tobacco and Fair Trade and Independent Tobacco uh, Association, saying that they will continue fighting this. It has been dismissed on a matter of urgency. Remember, also happening this afternoon, Mbongeningem, a playwright, is uh, they're holding a memorial in his honor today. And, of course, Arts Minister Zizi Kwato is leading a delegation to the home of Dr. Peter Magwani to try and... Um, to, in, in, uh, oof, in honor of the late photojournalist. That's it for me. Here's a news update.